Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. This week on the Coffeehouse, we're talking about a German composer who is a true Englishman. That's right, it's Sir Edward German, <laughs> hailing from Wales. Edward German was born in 1862. He began to learn music from his father, who taught him how to play the organ, and then Edward went on to teach himself how to play the violin. And his interest in music only grew during his youth, and as a teen, he was even the leader of the White Church Orchestra in his town of Shropshire. German's educational interests are somewhat unique amongst composers we've looked at. It seems that often other composers have wanted to, or been forced by their family to, pursue fields such as law or the military. German, however, was presented at a crossroads between music and engineering. Music obviously won out in the end, and German began attending the Royal Academy of Music. And while at the RAM, German was quite successful both as a violinist and as a composer. His first operetta was The Two Poets, and was performed at the Academy. After schooling, he continued to show an interest in writing more programmatic and stage works, and he also spent his early professional days as a violinist in theater orchestras. His first big break came in 1888 when he was 25 years old. He took over the conductorship of the orchestra at the famous Globe Theater. With this post, not only could he continue to immerse himself in the presentation of stage works, but it also gave him fantastic opportunities to write programmatic incidental music to accompany Shakespeare's plays. And thus, some of his more famous compositions are the Overture for Richard III and Dances to accompany Henry VIII. The love the public expressed for these works allowed German to gain even greater fame. The public interest in his works grew, and thus his symphonies and other pieces written solely for the concert hall became high profile. German also continued writing the operettas in the British light music style. And this style he developed led to his second big break. The unfortunate death of Sir Arthur Sullivan in 1900 left the operata The Emerald Isle unfinished. German was commissioned to complete the score. The final product was a hit with the public and it was thought that German would be the natural successor to Sullivan. And so he was, somewhat. The English crowds were finicky about their light operas, and each successive premiere for German seemed to have its ups or downs. Thomas Dunhill, a contemporary of German, wrote about his works and style and stated that it was so unfortunate that German was constantly compared to Sullivan. For though German was an astounding composer in his own right, Sullivan had his own personal style and humor that made his operatas what they were. And going into a German work and expecting a Sullivan production just wasn't fair, and it wasn't German style. Dunhill goes on to suggest that if Sullivan were to be compared to German's strictly concert works in the same way that German is compared to Sullivan's stage works, then Sullivan would have been the one viewed as less talented. 
German sense of simplicity yet perfect conveyance of meaning and style were ideally suited for these programmatic concert works. As the quote-unquote successor to Sullivan, it was to be expected that eventually German would team with the infamous Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan fame. The collaboration produced an operetta in 1909 entitled The Fallen Fairies. However, it was quite a flop, and following this production, German seemed to lose hope that his style of writing would be welcomed by the public. From then on, German composed very little. Rather, he revisited many of his old scores and spent time editing and perfecting them. He also took time for leisure and spent a good deal of time simply bicycling around the countryside. <laughs> However, his earlier efforts did not go unrewarded. In 1928, German received his knighthood for contributions to the English music repertoire. German passed away in 1936. Dunhill, who had written an obituary in the Musical Times, is quoted saying, quote, When the transitional unrest through which music all over Europe is now passing has subsided a little, we shall recognize more fully the worth of a composer who had so much to say to us in a charming personal idiom, and we shall come to look upon his limitation not as weakness, but rather as evidence of a steadfast adherence to his own ideals of musical beauty. So now, let's see just how charming German could be as we look at Autumn from his orchestral work, The Seasons. The Seasons was written in 1899 and received a revision in 1900. Of course, there are four movements to this symphonic tone poem collection, but as we have just entered the wonderful autumnal season, we ourselves will be focusing our interest just on the third movement, appropriately titled Autumn. Again, going back to the writing of Thomas Dunhill, the other three movements of the work seem to be full of boisterous energy, while the autumn movement, quote, would seem was the only season which inspired the composer to indulge in serious and sustained reflections. Nevertheless, it is still written with quaint English charms, which we shall see. To begin, the opening gives off a vibe that is somewhat reminiscent of Mahler's first symphony, a notoriously programmatic work. Here is Mahler's work, with a quiet sustained note and slow somber melody. However, it is interrupted by the clarinet section. And now here is German's Autumn. We also have a quiet sustain with a slow, ponderous melody. And here are the harmonious clarinets with a more forward melody. But, as Dunhill warned, it is not fair to continue to compare German to other composers. He should be appreciated for his own charming style. As a programmatic writer, German had to be very good at evoking emotions, and not just on the scale of happy or sad. 
His harmonic writing is actually able to conjure up more refined emotions. Take, for example, this longer passage. It's rather languid, but peaceful and wistful. We begin in a major key, however, we eventually fall into minor. German does, however, give a little ray of sunshine that perhaps is remembered from the past before going back into a notably gloomy mood. The whole flow of this passage suggests that German was reflecting on the past happy days which brings him joy, but at the same time bitter regret that they are gone. A very complex sequence indeed for a piece without any words or even a well-defined story. One of the charms of German's music is the little bits of extra melodic decoration that can be heard throughout. In this passage, we are basically hearing a repeat of the sunny reflection we previously heard. However, German adds a new texture, an oboe solo. This is subtle, but this little melody is a really lovely countermelody to the lush strings. And later in the work, we hear the same little countermelody brought more to the fore by being played with a solo violin. This added voice is quite theatrical in nature. If we were to imagine the string line being perhaps a tenor soloist singing about his memories, this higher and complimentary oboe could be perhaps the soprano singing into the tenor's memories. Though this work is not in sonata allegro form, there is a bit of a section that could be compared to a development section. We hear our familiar motif here, And the strings just keep playing it over and over again, with each sequence at the end of the phrase taking them into a different key. The woodwinds similarly start picking up the motif, and it all becomes a bit confused. Where is German going with this? It's the percussion section to the rescue. With the roll of the timpani, we now have a guidepost telling us we're heading towards the climax of the work. In previous iterations of the main theme, the little sequence at the end had been a quick turnaround to get back to the beginning of the motif. However, coming out of the climax, German really has to help the energy wind down, and so he extends the sequential pattern. And also slows the bass line to really help pull back the energy. 
The ending of the piece is of course a continual decrease in energy. While at the beginning, German had used the full clarinet section to herald in a sweet reflection, at the end, German uses the English horn to suggest a more somber reflection that is perhaps more of the present than of days long past. At the very end of the piece, the orchestra slowly and subtly slides into the final chord. However, German does firmly ground us in the harmony, thanks again to the timpani. He has the timpani play a traditional 5 to 1 cadence, giving a nice, definitive end to the piece. We hope this look at German's autumn has helped you feel cozy for your own personal autumn activities. And if you enjoyed what you listened to, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or Google Play, and do share us with a like-minded friend. Drop a follow on Spotify if that's where you're listening as well. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. German's Autumn from the Seasons and Mahler Symphony No. 1, Movement 1 were performed by the DuPage Symphony Orchestra conducted by Barbara Schubert. You can find the Coffeehouse on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.